This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles, if you have one, or turn on your device. Somehow, uh, find the book of Philippians. Philippians. We're doing a a summer study through the book of Philippians, and we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. Now, next Sunday, uh, I'm going to take a one-week departure uh, from the book of Philippians, and I want to invite you to come. If you're a regular part of Grace Church, really, well, I invite you to come. hope you come every week, but uh, really love to have you next week, because what I'm going to be doing is uh, bringing a message from the Scripture and, uh, in addition, a little bit of a kind of state of the union for our church, if I could say it that way, and then lay out some of the fall. Usually we can kind of lay out like, you know, church and vision in August when people are on vacation, but we want to, we want to prepare you for the fall and we're going to do a few, few different things this fall, which I think you'll like, but come next week and you'll find out if you like them or not. So there you go. So now I've kind of uh, whet your appetite for, uh, for what's coming. So uh, we'll do that next Sunday. I want to invite you back there. So today we are in Philippians 2 again. And here's what we talked about last week. I'm going to talk about this because this is going to play into this passage. The Bible, the, one of the reasons we teach through books of Scripture like this is because you get things in context. And uh, one thought follows another. And uh, last week we talked about verses 12 and 13 in chapter 2 and talked about the fact that God saves us by His grace, gives us new life in Jesus Christ because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was, rose from the dead. And as we trust Him, if we believe Him, that He's our sacrifice, we receive new life. So God gives us new life and then He changes us. He makes us more and more like Jesus. So you don't get good and then you become a Christian. Uh, we're all bad and we need rescue and forgiveness. God takes us as we are, and then he begins to work his character into us. And we looked at last week that we're to work out the salvation he's given us. We're to work that out with fear and trembling because he's at work in us. So we work out what he by grace is working in us. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. We looked at that last week. And then we saw also in that passage how he does that so that we'll be an example, a testimony, a witness, we could say, to the world that doesn't know Jesus. And he also does that for our joy. This week we're going to look at uh, verses 19 through 30 of uh, chapter 2. But before we get there and look at that, I want to ask you a question. And here's the question. Who is a great example of the Christian faith for you? Who's a great example of the Christian faith for you? When you think of really godly people, really godly people that you've personally known, who comes to mind? Now, I hope you didn't think of yourself. Uh, Because if you did, you were just disqualified as a really godly person. So uh, (laughs) the most godly person I know, that would have to be me. Well, okay, Uh, sorry, you lost. There's a consolation prize for you in the back. Uh, but who is it that you, so think of someone, who, who is it that you know that's really a godly person? And when you think of that person, what is it that makes them a great example to you? So they're an example of godliness. Why is that? Why is that? What is it about them? Why did you think of, why did that person pop into your head? You didn't have to think long, they came up. Well, I'm privileged to have lived a life where I've known a lot of godly people. And uh, really at the top of that list would be my wife, 
uh, as a person who I see day in, day out, and see how she walks with the Lord and loves the Lord um, and serves others. So she would certainly be at the top of that list for me. I've, I have the privilege to serve with leaders in a church that uh, set an example for all of us and for me as well. So I learn from them and appreciate their example. So I have a lot of folks in my life. If I were to think back about a godly example in my life that affected me, not today, but in my formative years and when I grew as a Christian, when I was first growing as a Christian, uh, that person would be my mom. And uh, she's not living anymore. She's uh, with the Lord today. So she's more godly than any of us. She's like perfect, no sinless at this point with the Lord. She died a long time ago. You can laugh. It's okay. It's not a, uh, not a, you know, not a uh, grieving moment right now. But she's with the Lord. And, uh, but I remember growing up, this is, this, is, this is how I'd answer the question, what about her made her a great example, is that she took an interest in other people, a genuine interest, and I, f- I feel like, except for my wife, no one has taken a greater personal interest and has loved me more than her. And so she took an interest in me, she was for me, I always felt she was for me, she cared about me, she didn't just care about me in a general sense, she wanted me to know the Lord and follow the Lord, and she cared about others and they felt that. So when I was in high school, uh, a lot of kids, our house was a place to come. Kids, other kids would come over and, you know, I thought maybe that's because of me, but really it's because of my mom that uh, people wanted to come over and she fed them. So that's one reason. She always had a lot of uh, snacks on hand. Uh, so people came for that. But I think it was also because people felt she was caring. She was loving. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't the mom that's kind of staring down at everybody, ready to get everybody in trouble, kind of giving them the eye. Uh, it wasn't that kind of thing. She was asking questions. She was joyful and she was very free to talk about Jesus. So she wasn't going to hide it. She talked about him very freely uh, to all kinds of people because she loved them and and loved, uh, wanted them to know Christ. So she took an interest in me and in others. And that was a godly example to me. And also she did that through suffering. So she had a lifetime of uh, chronic uh, illnesses um, and that's what led to kind of an early death for her. She, she died uh, relatively, relatively young. Um, and so she followed Jesus and loved others through suffering. And I don't know who you thought of or why, but I wonder if those were some of the things you thought about. Someone who really loved and cared for others and served them. Or someone who suffered <clears throat> or suffers, <clears throat> excuse me, and walks through suffering. Those are the kinds of things that sometimes we think about in godliness. And the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul is going to highlight those two character qualities in two different individuals. And he's going to hold them up, in essence, as an example. Now, when we read this passage, at first it kind of looks like Paul giving a travel itinerary. Uh, This guy's going to come and visit you, and I hope to come. I may be able to come. And the guy that you sent to me already, he's coming back to you. And so it sounds like a lot of comings and goings. But at the heart of this passage is not travel itinerary, but it's the highlight of the work of God in two particular individuals that Paul holds up to the church at Philippi. So let's begin reading in verse 19. We'll read to the end of the chapter. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ that you have done what we can never do for ourselves, that you've saved us, you've given us new life. And Lord, you're working in us and you're working in those around us. And we pray that you would help us see that. Lord, we pray you would open our eyes to this text and we could understand what, what difference a godly example can make. And we understand how you work. Lord, so we just pray that you would speak to us today in a very clear way. We need to hear from you. And uh, I pray that. I pray that you would grant me strength and clarity. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, to be able to communicate your word uh, to your dear people. Lord, help us to all hear from you in this passage and change us. Lord, help us to grow and be more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, and if you notice here, Paul is talking about two different guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he highlights a lot of things about both of them. But we really could... Uh, we really could sort of narrow it to two. What he talks about in Timothy is that Timothy is a guy who has a genuine interest in you. He cares for you. He puts your needs above himself. He doesn't pursue his own interests. He's selfless, we could say. And then in Epaphroditus, it says that he served and that he risked his life and that he almost died. He suffered to serve people. It could have been the illness he had that almost killed him, we don't know. But somehow he almost died in the cause of Christ, he suffered. One author, Dennis Johnson, said that in these two pictures, we have two pictures. We have Timothy, the selfless servant, and we have Epaphroditus, the suffering servant. And I'm gonna take those, I'm just gonna borrow those two categories, I think that's well said. Timothy, the selfless servant. Look how Paul describes him, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. Well, before describing him, he gives this explanation. I hope to send him. Now down in verse 23, he explains why he's not sending him yet. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So he's saying, I, I gotta figure out what's gonna happen with me, but then I wanna send him to you. Well, what's happening with Paul is he's in prison. He's in prison, kind of a house arrest situation and he's awaiting trial for his faith and he's wondering, he's waiting to stand before Caesar. He wonders if he's gonna be executed or not. So he's saying, I need Timothy, man. I gotta have him here with me uh, until I figure out how it's gonna go with me, but he anticipates it's going to go well because he says, I hope to come to you as well. And then he tells us why he's going to send Timothy. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, Timothy is unique. He's genuinely, I want to send him because he's genuinely concerned for you. What motivates Timothy is how are you doing? Your welfare. 
And I don't have anyone else like that. Now, perhaps Paul's speaking with a little bit of hyperbole here uh, because I don't think he's saying Timothy is the only guy on the planet besides me that has an interest in anyone else. Because in the next paragraph, he's going to tell us that Epaphroditus loves them too, ultimately, and cares about them. But I think he speaks of Timothy in, in an unusual way, a unique way. He's kind of saying, of those, I have no one else like him. Of those who are with me, of those who are serving alongside of me, Timothy stands out. He's outstanding, a standout. And, and what makes him a standout is his motive, his love. See, there's a lot of people that serve, but he serves because he's genuinely concerned for your welfare. They seek their own interest and not those of Christ Jesus. He's a compelling example of a selfless servant because he really gets it. He, he is concerned with how you are doing, and he's not serving because of his own interests. It's easy to serve with our own interests in view. Sometimes we serve, I can't speak for you, sometimes I serve, because when I serve, I feel better about myself. We feel good to serve. We feel like we've made a contribution. It feels good to do something charitable or noble or helpful. Or sometimes, maybe it's not that it makes me feel good to serve, it just avoids me feeling bad. So I don't feel guilty, you know, there's some need over there, there's a person who needs something, and uh, boy, there's probably something else I'd rather do, but you know what? I'm gonna feel really bad if I don't, I feel kind of guilty, actually I haven't done anything already. And so I better go do something. And that's a, both of those, I feel good about myself or I don't feel bad, those, those are about self-interest. That's not about how goes it with you. That's not about forget me, I'm motivated by your welfare and the interest of Christ Jesus. Sometimes we serve because we like to be appreciated. We like to be recognized. We like to be, sometimes service could even bring a reward. We like to be rewarded. Um, so sometimes we serve to enhance our reputation. I mean, nobody really wants to be known as like the lazy, selfish pig in the group. We all want to sort of be known as someone who cares about other people. It, it enhances our relationship to be a servant especially if we can post a picture on Instagram or Facebook of us serving and uh, sacrificing for others. Whew, sure was fun helping so-and-so move today and you're holding the box and they just happen to get that picture up there. So sometimes we like to enhance our reputation for noble things. There's never the Instagram pic of the guy in the recliner watching the game saying, watching the game while all my friends are serving my other friend moving. That doesn't ever make it to social media. So it's, we, we like to enhance our reputation. Or, or maybe this, sometimes we serve because we believe our service could lead to something, well, something bigger. We even quote that verse, faithful in little, ruler over much. I'm not sure that Jesus meant, for your own interest, do a little bit, and then you can have a position of oversight, responsibility, leadership. Then you can be a lot more important and feel better about yourself. That's not what he's saying at all. We are faithful in small things because we have a genuine, we're to have a genuine care for others and we're to have a genuine desire to see the Lord honored. That's why we're faithful in little things, to care for others and to honor the Lord. And uh, nothing really tests our motives or, or, or exposes our motives, I should say. Nothing exposes our motives for service until we're tested. Why do I serve? Why do you serve? Sometimes the Lord will arrange a test that will help us to know why we serve. 
Uh, do we have Jesus' interest in view? Do we have the welfare of others in view? Sometimes we don't know until we do something and someone else publicly receives the credit for it. Or we're le- left off the list. We'd like to thank all the following people who participated. And you're kind of wanting to go, hey, well, you forgot somebody. Or somebody gets credit for something you did. And then all of a sudden, the self-interest just emerges. We thought we were noble and charitable and sacrificial and loving and cared. And all of a sudden, sometimes the testing will reveal. And here's the interesting thing about this passage. Paul not only says that Timothy has your best interest at heart, Paul said he's been tested. He's been tested. That's what he says. I can't wait to send him to you. Um, for I have no one like him. He'll be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, which I've just been speaking about, not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. He's proven. You're proving proving through time and through testing. You know his proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Okay, Timothy has been proven like a son who is serving, a son who's working with his father. Now, in our culture, that doesn't have near the impact it would have to the original readers. Because we think, oh yeah, a son was serving with his father. Yeah, my kid helped me trim the hedges this week. And oh yeah, that was great. He helped and um, didn't slice anything off but but branches. And you know, so we think that... (laughs) But, but they had a very different world because in the Greco-Roman world, the way vocation, and by that I mean job, the way your job typically worked is what your father did as a guy, a son with a father, what your father did is what you did. And in an agrarian society, it was always that way that if you were a farmer, your son was a farmer. It was a family farm. This is how we produced food to eat. Even families that would have lived in urban context, uh, still what, what the father did is what the son did. If your dad was a carpenter, like Jesus' uh, Jesus' father, uh, Joseph, Jesus was a carpenter. So that would have been typical. You just did what your father did, and you were trained to do that. Now, we live in a world that is so different. I mean, the way we live is different than, most of, uh, than the way most people in history have lived. And the way, different than the way many people live today. So the idea that I'm going to grow up and I can do whatever I want to do and I'm going to fulfill my dreams and I'm going to take personality tests and skill inventories to find out what would be the best job match for me. And then I'm going to go to a college or a trade school or something like that and I'm going to learn and then I'm going to put my resume out there and interview and I'm going to find a job somewhere that has nothing to do with what my parents do and then I'm going to move somewhere else and away from the family and I'm going to go do it. That is not the way it's worked usually in history. Usually if daddy's a farmer, you're a farmer. That's the way it works. There's not the kind of world that we live in. So when he says this, he means a lot. A son would have been trained by his father to plant, to till, to harvest. And then he would have grown up working with his father. And he would have understood, maybe they were selling some of the crops. He would have understood the business end of it. And as he got older, he'd be given some responsibility, some management, some oversight of maybe if they had someone else that worked for them. And then one day he'd be prepared so that when dad became uh, unable or when dad died, he'd manage the family farm or whatever the business was. And so a son learning to serve with his father 
didn't mean we raked the leaves one Saturday morning. It meant that as a life, you learned the trade, you learned the skill, and dad would have had years to observe, years to see what is this kid's motive? What's his work ethic? What's he really like? And that's the example he uses here. He says, like a son serving his father, his prune worth, as a son with his father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul's saying, look, I do gospel work. He did other things too. He was a tent maker. But I do gospel work. And so I've watched Timothy. I've trained him. I've observed him. We preach the gospel together. We train leaders together. We care for hurting people together. We counsel people together. We work with leaders together. We prayed for sick people together. Uh, we, we listened. We taught the scripture. We taught people how to pray and read their Bibles. We've taught people how to share their faith. We've cast out demons. We've started small groups. We've trained men. Uh, all these kinds of things. I've watched him grow up with me in the gospel work, and I'm telling you, he's proven. And he's demonstrated that he has your interests at heart. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. He's a selfless servant. Here's the striking thing about Timothy. When we read this description, uh, that he genuinely is concerned for your welfare, others seek their own interests, he seeks those of Christ. I mean, it really sounds like when we read that, we're reading a description of what Jesus is like. If we look earlier in the passage in chapter 2, in verse 3, Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, that's what we're talking about. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, he is, he's saying, here's what he's saying. He's saying, there's something about Timothy I want to point out to you. And that's there's something in him that's very Christ-like. He, he has been saved by the grace of God. Uh, he has been given new life in Christ. And Christ has worked in him, verse 12, so that now he is working out the work of Christ. I mean, that's verse 12, verse 13. He's working this out. And now you can see the character of Christ in him because he's not serving for his own interest. He's not serving to enhance his resume. He's not serving because he's obligated. He's not serving because he wants to feel good about himself. He's serving because of the interest of Jesus and the good of others, and he has your welfare. Jesus gives his life not because it's convenient, but because he has our welfare in view, and it's the interest of his Father who has sent him, and he's obeying the Father. Jesus gives his life because he genuinely cares and loves us. And he's saying that's who Timothy is like. So notice that he's a selfless servant. The Lord Jesus, the ultimate selfless servant, has changed him and is working through him and transforming him. So notice that about him, he says. Next, he goes to this guy named Epaphroditus. Verse 25, he says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus, who he calls your messenger, is from the church at Philippi. Epaphroditus has visited Paul and is in, in prison, and he has brought him something from uh, the church. It's financial, it could be something else. You know, I don't know if he brought him a goodie pack, if the grandmas of the church baked some stuff and he took it to him. I don't know, books, clothes, I don't know what he took, but he took him some stuff to help him while he's there ministering from prison. He's actually ministering there. And so he's your messenger and he's saying, I'm sending him back. I'm gonna send him back to you. Now, before we look at him, this isn't really the heart of this message, but I gotta point this out because I was affected when I read this and when one person that I read explained to me what's being said here. Uh, he said that uh, ultimately when Epaphroditus describes, and when Paul describes Epaphroditus, he does it all in relational terms. They kind of look functional, but they're really relationally functional. They're built on relationship. He says, Epaphroditus is my brother. So the guy that's visiting him in prison, they have a heart for the mission, they're serving together in the mission of Christ. He's like family to me. It's not like this church member, this dude from your church. Hey, dude from your church is coming home. Hey, guy from your church. No, this is my brother. It's my family. Then he says, he's my fellow worker. Now that, that sounds kind of generic. That sounds task-driven. Worker. We, he's my fellow worker. But the way the word is constructed is we have two words in English, fellow worker. The Bible's written in Greek. And the Greek term there is the Greek term for work or worker. And then Paul put a prefix on the front of it. And the prefix means together with. So it literally, it's not translated literally because it would be very cumbersome to read. He's my together with worker. But man, is that powerful. The same for soldier. He's my fellow soldier. We're in a spiritual war. We're in a battle against the forces of darkness, but we're not alone. We have a together with soldier by our side. We're in the trench together, man. We are taking the gospel to those who need him. We are growing in the Lord together and we are in a battle but we are not alone. We have together with soldiers and together with workers. And I just thought, man, it'll never catch on. It'll never be on, the on a t-shirt because it just sounds clunky. But man, that would be a great way for us to think about ourselves in this church. That what we do, we do in relationship. That we do it with others. That I'm not just a member of a community group. I'm a together with member. I'm not just in the children's ministry. I'm together with the children's ministry. I'm not just an usher at Grace Church. I'm a together with usher. I'm on a team. We us together. We care for people together. We, we help people find a place to sit and a comfort. We take care of whatever needs to be done around here. I'm not just up here playing on the worship band. I'm together with the worship band. I love the sense of that. He's saying, hey, we are together in these things. We're together with uh, we're, we're together with in outreach. We're together with in study. We're together with in prayer. We're together with in service, whatever it might be. So that's how Paul expresses the, the truth about this guy. And then he tells us what kind of a guy he is, what he's done. Uh, he said, hey, he's been longing for you all. So he has an interest in them. He's been longing to get back to his home church because you guys heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, nearly died. He was so sick, but God had mercy on him. Paul says, God had mercy on me too, so I didn't have sorrow upon sorrow. I didn't lose a brother and be in jail at the same time. That's sorrow upon sorrow. 
So he, he says, look, Paul, he's distressed. Why? Because he almost died? Well, not really. He's distressed because they heard he was sick. And, he, he, and you can't just shoot a text, hey, feeling better, LOL. I mean, these are people who are, uh, these are people you've got, you've got to travel, send a letter, a messenger, a courier, whatever it is. So he, they don't know. They hear this rumor that, man, we sent Epaphras and he almost died. And he's concerned that they're worried about him. So he wants to get back and uh, see them. And then he goes on to say, um, I'm the more eager, verse 28, to send him that you may rejoice. When you see him, you're going to be excited. He's going to deliver this letter, by the way. He's going to bring you a letter. You're going to read it. He's going to be standing there. You're going to be excited because he's alive. And he's going to tell you how things are going. So receive him, verse 29, in the Lord with all joy. The 11th time Paul's mentioned joy in this letter. This, this letter is all about joy. It's about joy in Christ written from a guy in prison. Talking about someone who got so sick they almost died. So we've got these kind of themes running through the book, and yet it's all about joy. Love that. So here is joy. I, I, it, it's going to be a joy for you to receive him. And this is interesting, honor such men. So give this guy honor, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. He almost died. He, he risked his life to complete was, what was lacking in your service to me. What's he saying there? He's saying, well, this guy uh, brought what you wanted to send to me. He completed the service that you had to me, and it almost cost him his life. Therefore, in his suffering service, honor him. The service of Christ brought suffering to his life and nearly death, and he was taking a risk in what he was doing. That's powerful. Paul's point here, by the way, nor is my point, to say, you know, step back and be amazed by Timothy. Look unto Timothy. Look unto Epaphroditus. No, we are to look to Jesus and his work on the cross. Jesus has rescued both of these men. Timothy uh, came from a mixed family. He wasn't uh, Jewish in background, but he had a, likely one of his, his parents was Gentile. His dad is Gentile. Uh, and so Timothy uh, came from a, a background. He wasn't most likely to be serving with Paul. Epaphroditus, his name probably comes from Aphrodite, who I think was a goddess of fertility, I'm not sure, but she was, she was a goddess. Greek goddess in Ephesus. She, was, she had a temple in Ephesus. So he's probably named after a goddess. So he comes from a pagan background. But God reaches down and gives him new life in Jesus and changes his character. And now he's risking his life for the one who died for him. Even his example, he almost died. Points back early into the chapter, which we read earlier. Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so now Epaphroditus, his whole life has been changed by Christ so that he's willing to die for the one who died for him. And he almost did. He almost did. It's, a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful picture so what is Paul saying here? He says, well, Timothy's coming. He has a heart for you, so receive him. Receive him. Epaphroditus is coming. Be joyful, because he's alive. It's going to be better than what you expected. So receive him with joy. He goes on, honor him as well. And implicit, he doesn't say it in this passage, but implicit is, Man, follow these guys' examples because there's something of Jesus's care, of the nature of Jesus that's been worked in their character by grace. So 
implied here is follow their example, imitate them. Now, it's not only implied, it's explicitly stated in the next chapter. Look over at chapter 3. Paul's going to say something amazing here. Chapter 3, verses 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to us. So Paul is saying, we have an example. Keep your eyes on people who live like we do. Keep your eyes on them. Now, we are all called as believers to be followers, learners, students of Jesus. That's a disciple. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. We're to follow him, the one who saved us. But part of following him is going to be looking through the example of others to see his work in them and to imitate their example as part of following him. That's what he's saying. He's saying these guys provide an example for you that you can learn from, you can ask questions of, you can interact with. Paul is preparing the Philippian church to receive two exemplary servants that they would benefit from. As a matter of fact, he highlights something in them. He he doesn't say, notice here, that Timothy's perfect. He's not, but we know that's not true because in 1 Timothy, uh, when he writes to Timothy, He has to sort of correct Timothy. You'll notice he didn't say, follow Timothy's bold courage. Because when he writes to Timothy personally, he said, hey, come on, Timothy, man up. Don't be afraid. You're timid. Come on, be bold. So he's not a perfect example in every area. We know that, but it's in the Bible. What is is being highlighted here is this particular area of his life that he genuinely loves others, that he takes an interest in others, that that Christ has formed his character so that he is working out what Jesus has worked in him. And it's compelling. Why do you think he highlights that? Well, I'll tell you one reason, because probably what's going on in Philippi is there's people pursuing selfish ambition. He has to say, don't look after your own interests. Why? Because people are looking after their own interests. And there's probably some budding friction and conflict in the church. So what does he do? He holds up an example of someone who demonstrates how we should behave together for the glory of God. Um, Wonderful. Or, Or the one who suffered, living through suffering. He says in this letter, Paul says to them that you are suffering just as I am. Remember how you are suffering. So they're probably receiving some persecution. So what does he do? He highlights a guy that didn't just have persecution, almost lost his life in serving Jesus. He says, get to know, ask that guy some questions. Church is about to fight. We've got two ladies. I mention it every week. We're going to get to it. The showdown, the smackdown in chapter four between Euodia and Syntyche. We're coming. But we've got these two ladies that are fighting. So what does he do? Hey, I'm sending you a guy that, you know what? Here's his lifestyle. He puts others' interest above his own. Maybe he could sit down with those two ladies and talk with them. I don't know. But we see that. There's this example because he's highlighting values that he wants to see worked out in the life of this church. What you commend is what will be built in in an organization. And so he's commending what he wants to see built in the life of this church. Get to know these guys. They're selfless. They've suffered. There'll be something to learn for you from them. They're not God, but there's something to learn. Now, there's always, I understand there's always a risk when we talk about something like this because we're not talking about being mimics or clones. He's not saying be a clone of Timothy. 
Man, I gave you an example of maybe where he would say, Timothy needs to grow, so grow with him, but don't imitate exactly how he lives in that area. Uh, he's growing. Um, but he's not just saying we want everybody just to be like these two guys in every area of life. But he's saying, look at how Christ has worked in their lives and follow that example in your own life as the Lord would work that out in your personality, in your life, in your culture, in your environment, and those kinds of things. So let me ask you this. Who are the examples in your life? Uh, Whom are you learning from? Who reflects the character of Christ in some area to you personally? I didn't ask who's your favorite author. I didn't ask who's your favorite conference speaker. I didn't ask you what's your favorite podcast to listen to. Who's your favorite blogger? Who put, who are you a fan of on Facebook that puts stuff up that's really good? Or who do you follow? Some famous Christian somewhere on Twitter that drops drops great wisdom in 140 characters or less into your little heart. Who, who is it that you are, I didn't ask that. I, the question is, who's a personal example? He's preparing them to, sit, to, to follow someone that they can sit down with, that they can interact with, real flesh and blood. And he says, keep your eyes on them. If that wasn't in the Bible, I think we'd be a little uncomfortable with that. I mean, I don't think I'd be teaching that if that wasn't in the Bible, but I am teaching it because it's in the Bible, 317. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have on us. He spent a paragraph, not very many guys get a paragraph of the Bible written about their character. So surely they're among them. Keep your eyes on them and see what motivates them and follow the Jesus they follow. And as he works in you, work it out like they're working it out. That's what he is saying to them. Who could you imitate that follows the Lord? Now listen, I I like conference speakers. I'll select a conference based on who's speaking at it. I listen to podcasts. I read books. But here's the deal. When I'm reading a book on suffering, I, I can't, the guy's not listing his phone number in the book for me to call and spend a little time together. The the podcast is one way. I don't get to talk back and ask questions and that sort of thing. He's saying, we we can learn from all kinds of people, but he's saying you need some people in your life that's flesh and blood that you can encounter like these guys. He's preparing them for personal encounter. Keep your eyes on them to learn more about the work of Christ and his character. I've said this before in the church but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it again because you may be new. You may have a short memory. I, but I just need to say this again. If you are in our church and you're a college student or maybe you're someone in your 20s, maybe you're newly married in your 20s, or maybe you're a, a young parent in your 20s, your 30s, maybe you've got kids that are starting to get a little older, maybe you're breaking the barrier. This is a big one. Maybe you're breaking the barrier in August and your oldest will be headed into middle school. That's a big adjustment. So you're younger. I view that as younger, those, those areas from my perspective. So you're younger. If, if that's you, I envy you. Not because I'm an old guy on my last breath and I wish I could do it over again. It's really not that. I, actually, I wouldn't trade with you. I don't want to be younger. Glad I'm, glad I'm where I am. But 
what I envy about that is because when my wife and I were newly married, we were in a church where everybody was our age. And so when a lot of newly married people that are all in their early 20s, that's all you got, mid-20s, you all sit together to share about marriage, it's just pooled ignorance. That's all it is. <laughs> now, that, no disrespect if you're newly married and you're in your 20s. No disrespect, but that's the bottom line. Oh, you've been married eight months? Well, help me, we've been married six months, you know? And uh, so you've got a one-year-old, we've got a newborn. How do you get them to sleep tonight? I mean, that's helpful, that can be helpful. In the, the people that were furthest ahead of us in life were like five years down the road. And the danger in that is we're new parents and somebody's got a five-year-old. The danger in that is they've got all kinds of theories, they've done a few things, but it hadn't really worked out yet. They got five years. That's more than I had, but... Uh, how about like somebody that's made it all the way to adulthood? Could I ask them a question? How about somebody in those shoes? And so this church has a lot of people who are experienced. This church has people of proven worth, who genuinely take the interest in others, who have served through suffering. If you're younger, keep your eyes. Let's read Paul. I want to say it exactly like he did. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in Paul in the scripture, the example of the scripture. Keep your eyes out, younger person from my relative age, younger person, keep your eyes out and find someone that you can learn from, someone in your small group, someone else in the church that's seasoned, that's more experienced than you, and, 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 and learn from them. It is rich to be a part of a multi-generational church. That is a rich privilege. And I'd recommend you get your, your phone and your note-taking app and you jot down questions and you find that guy, you, you invite him to coffee or you buy him a taco or whatever it is and you fire questions at him and sit down and just ask him, hey, you're an example to me. Now, help me, how do I figure this out? There are guys in this church that can help you, young men, in your career. And it's not because they're perfect. They can sit down with you and say, let me tell you what a fool I was at 25. Let me tell you the idiot mistake I made at 30. Learn from their failures and their wisdom, and most importantly, what the scripture. Here's how the Bible's helped me to have a biblical view of my work life. Here's how the Bible's helped me as a husband. Here's how the Bible's helped me as a father. Here's how I'm working that out. Here's how as a friend, as a son, as a neighbor, as a witness, here's how I'm processing and figuring this all out, but it's someone who has proven worth, like a son with their father, they have experience over the years, know how to manage finance, their, their, uh, their finances, know how to balance their priorities. Yes, I know something about having a demanding boss and a marriage and a family and extended family. Uh, and want to be, have hobbies in my life, and serve in my church, and lead in my church. I know about all that. It's hard to manage, but here's what I've learned from God's Word. That's gold. I praise God. Go buy a book. Go buy a book on biblically managing your time. Wonderful. Do that. Read it. Learn. I can recommend something to you. Do that. But you don't get to call that author up. Find someone real that you can learn from. Ladies, the same way. Listen, I just sat down with a couple. I didn't share this in first service. I forgot about this. I just recently sat down with a couple. And uh, young, really young from my point of view, uh, uh, probably early to mid-20s. And um, so I was asking this couple about their story. And so they described how they met and how they started dating. And and then they, they dropped this in their history. 
So early on, we're dating, and we, we just said, hey, we, we want to pursue a relationship that leads to marriage. We think this is leading to marriage. I don't have the timetable, but it, it was within a few months of dating, just a few months. They said, within a few months, we asked so-and-so, leaders in our church that I know and respect, and great move. We asked so-and-so, this couple, if they'd mentor us. Well, you only been, this wasn't an engagement. You only been dating a few months. What are you talking? We started meeting with them and asking them early on how to relate. We don't know we're young. How to relate together, how to walk together. So just described to me, they were meeting with a, a, a more seasoned couple in our church, a more seasoned couple that we're not talking about engagement. This isn't like the premarital counseling time. This is like early on. We want to learn. We don't want to blow this thing. We want to learn. So we found someone we respect and we just sat in their living room on Sunday nights or whenever it was and asked them questions. Learned from them. Read some, actually read some material together. I just thought, may your tribe increase. You took advantage. You took advantage of the gift of God in your midst. It'd be like having Epaphroditus in your small group and say, I don't want to talk to him. I'm just going to go read a book somewhere or just on suffering or just do what I think. It's like feeling to call. I want to love other people. And sitting right next to you is Timothy and you never talk to him. Never ask him a question. Paul's saying, don't miss this. The work of God is in their lives. And by the way, this isn't just an older to younger thing. If you're an older person here today and you're kind of thinking, yeah, you preach it. It's about time. <laughs> About time some of the young people started tapping into my wisdom. <laughs> and if you're sitting there and you're kind of curmudgeonly saying, why is nobody asking me how to live their life? You know, about time somebody learned from me. It's possible you have your interest in view. If that's your attitude, that's your interest. That's not their interest. Their interest is how can I serve? It's not why aren't they coming to me? It's who could I love? Who could I serve? Who could I care for? Who could I re that's what the older people like me and you need to be thinking. And you know, we, we have something to learn too. Guess what? Timothy's probably a young guy and he's being held up as an example. Older people like us, we can tend to get overly stuck in our ways, overly stuck in our methodology, seeing things from one way. We need to learn from younger people who have the gift of faith, who are bold, who are wanting to make a difference, who are like full of gas, raring to go, who aren't a tad tainted and cynical like some of us can be. We need to learn from them. So some of us need to find a young person to take the coffee, right? And you pull out your papyrus and you write down, uh, you, you write down in hieroglyphics the questions you have for them. And let's ask them, let's ask them some questions and learn from one another. Timothy's a young guy. Hey, young people, aspire to have the grace of God work in you and change your heart so that you'd be held up and say, this person's been faithful, this person's learned, this person's been mentored, and they're young, but they've got something to offer. And he's gonna hold this young guy up in front of the whole church and say, learn from this guy. So it's not just the older people. I'm not just saying if you're 20, hey, you hang around and you follow us around for 30 years, then you'll have something to say once you prove, no. He's young and he's been faithful and he has something to contribute as well. So we all need each other, isn't that the good news? We all need each other. And let me just say, we have not, if you're new here, we have not figured out what I'm talking about as a church. I don't know that we're real good at this. I don't think I'm good at this. I don't know how good all the pastors and all the leaders in the church are. I don't know how good the 25 year olds are at what I'm talking about. That one couple's good I talked to you about. But I don't know that we're all real good at this. 
And if you've been around here, you, you may know that. This, this may be a weakness for us that we need to grow in. So I don't, I'm not rolling out a full plan. Next week, I don't have a PowerPoint on how we're going to accomplish this. But, but I, I want to pray about this and learn about this. And it's more a heart. We, we may need some structure. But it's more of a heart than anything else. If the heart is there to take an interest in other people, then we'll, we'll find a way to express that. And if the heart is there to learn in humility from other people, we'll find a way to express that those who are around us. So, he, the power of example in discipleship. We're called to serve Jesus, and may we all aspire to have him work in our hearts in such a life, in such a way that there'd be something of his character in us that would be an example to someone else, that someone else could say, I wanna follow the Lord as you do. I wanna follow you as you follow the Lord. I'm, I'm not looking ultimately to you, I'm ultimately looking through you to the scripture. But I need a flesh example of how does this work out in real life? How do you really take an interest in other people? How do you really serve and risk your life and continue to endure when it's costly? I need to see how that plays out. Read books. Most of all, read your Bible. Read some books. Love biographies. But I'd take a guy at coffee over a dead guy who died 200 years ago's biography any day. Because we can interact. We can talk. And I can learn. May God work this in us. Let's aspire to have the grace of God work in us so that we work out what he's working in us. And as part of our discipleship, we learn to be a family that learns from one another, young to old, old to young as well, and that we benefit from what God is doing in our midst. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.